Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Watt Carbon Podcast. Uh, this is your host, McGee Young. I'm flying solo today as Kelly Littleton is out. Uh, but fortunately, my colleague, Aaron Gubin, and co-founder and colleague Aaron Gubin has agreed to join us and uh, let me ask him a few questions. Uh, Aaron, it's great to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Uh, where, where are you today uh, currently, Aaron? And this is going to be a leading question because we've got some interesting things to dig into on that front. Yeah, I'm in Orange County, California. Orange County, California. Awesome. Uh, for those of you who don't know Aaron, um, one of the most uh, you know distinctive aspects of his of his um, of his location is is that it's frequently changing. So, so Aaron, uh, tell me a little bit about this. You know, you're you're a um, what what are they hashtag van life uh, yeah. uh, aficionado. Um, tell me tell me what that existence looks like right now. Yeah, digital nomad, I think is the, the term du jour. Um, I had been in, in San Francisco uh, paying silly rent, um, you know, working startup life. And then COVID happened and that company shut down its office. We all worked remotely and I could not justify paying an absurd amount of money every month just to sit in my little apartment. So I pretty quickly like jumped in bought an RV, like basically bought the last Airstream on the West Coast and uh, been on a three-year road trip. And so far, so good. So so when you were thinking about that, um, did you have did you have doubts? Did you have like, you know, was it one of those things where you like you had to kind of like psych yourself up to like take the plunge or was it like a no-brainer? It was, it was almost a no-brainer. Um, I think the thing that was a bit challenging was to figure out which RV and like how big I needed it to be. And the guys at the Airstream dealership were like super kind to me and just let me hang out in, you know, remember this is like still early days of COVID where everybody's like masked up and especially in the Bay area, people are freaked out. And yet they were perfectly happy to let me go and sit in a variety of different lengths of Airstreams to figure out and imagine, just sort of like, just think about what it would be like to be in a 23-footer full-time versus a 27 versus what I ended up with at 30 feet. So as Airstreams go, it's pretty long. So you have a 30-foot and and how, so 30 feet long and how wide? About eight feet, so 240 square feet. And so for context, that's about the size of of what, you know, what kind of average room? Is it like the size of a, of a bedroom, of a kitchen, of a living room? Yeah, it's probably about the size of a bedroom. Yeah, that sounds about right. 20 feet by 10 feet, 20 feet by, yeah, mm -hmm. 12 feet, something like that. Mm -hmm. And and so you have a bed, uh, you have a, a bathroom, I'm, I'm assuming. It's split, yeah, so there's a, like a toilet sink uh, on one side of the, trailer and then there's a shower stall on the other side and a, and a kitchen and a small like little kitchen set yep uh, three burner stoves and an oven i've made thanksgiving dinner in there it's been tight but cozy amazing amazing and then and then what do you do with all your stuff did you just have a big yard sale and, and put it out on the street and, and soma like what happens to all your stuff when one decides to, to go nomad yeah, I gave a lot of it away to Goodwill, just a lot of it. Uh, and then I sold a bunch of stuff. Um, so TV, couch, Peloton, 
Um, I, I uh, had external like Apple monitors and just liquidated all that stuff. Uh, other things like my Jeep, like my dream car, I couldn't part with. Just, like couldn't emotionally um, do that. So I got a storage unit and it's still toiling away in Reno, just waiting for me to give up and come back to it. And and so now you've been three years on the road and um, seen um, lots and lots of the country now. Yeah. Um, is there any place that you were that you said you know to to the aspiring nomad or the aspiring you know uh, U.S. explorer, like where do you have to get to that that you would never have kind of realized how amazing it was? Uh, yeah. Uh, so, I I am definitely partial to the Western U.S. Uh, as a as a general, like I've done three big loops of the West. I love the area around the Colorado River. Um, south of Moab and all the way down to Vegas, like that entire stretch of the country, mostly through Utah and Arizona are just spectacular. Uh, and then I've also really enjoyed uh, Northern Washington uh, from the Olympics all the way sort of uh, North of Spokane. Northern Washington is, is gorgeous. Lots of different kinds of climate and terrain. Um, but the, that Columbia River sort of uh, valley as well is just like spectacular. Have you read any of the great books about the West? Um, you know, there's fiction writers like Edward Abbey. Uh, there's uh, sociologists uh, who have written about the, the closing of the frontier. Uh, do you, you know, do you do you pick up these these types of books along the way to kind of get a, a feel for the, the part of the country you're in? Um, so yes and no. Uh, I, an ex-girlfriend of mine once bought me a book that I, it's one of the few books I carried with me, but it was like, uh, called like the great passes. And it's hmm. about like the history of like the, how explorers, frontiersmen sort of like figured out where they could get through, where they could cut through the mountains to get from, you know, one place to another. Like the dog. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, famously the Teton pass, et cetera. Um, so some histories like that. Yes. I mean, I, I had, have long been a Michener fan. Uh, like I loved Centennial. Um, the book on Hawaii was great. Um, and then when I'm in these like tiny little towns, like Miles city, Montana, or, um, Spokane is an interesting place or Bellingham, Washington. Like I like reading the, the Wikipedia pages. Hmm. about like what's going on in these towns and who who are the famous people that have come from there um hmm. what the weather's like what the schools are like you know what kind of city government do they have that seems great do you meet people in these in these places like locals or is it one of those like uh, anthony bourdain type things where you're you know you kind of try to sample the local cuisine and get to know what life is like in these places uh yeah so i I'm a particularly shy person. At least I, I perceive myself to be a very shy person. And one of the observations I have about this life is it's like my people. Everybody is polite. I'm happy to wave at you. I'll say hello. But stranger danger. Like I don't I don't need to get particularly close to you. You don't need to hear my life story. And um, so like I've probably been in five other people's RVs in three years, like 
you just like don't have people over. They, they, they don't come inside. I don't know uh-huh. in. They don't invite me in. Um, but in terms of like, again, in the in the early days, it was like COVID. So you know, everybody was keeping their distance. Uh, but what I also experienced was throughout most of the U.S., they just didn't care nearly as much about masking or social distancing as places on the coast did. Uh, and so like I would go into bars or restaurants a lot earlier than, you know, mm. the folks I left behind in San Francisco and, uh, you know, just chatted with the, the wait staff, you know, bartender, um, wherever you go. Um, some pretty decent restaurants. I think like one of the best, uh, Asian restaurants I've ever eaten at in America is in a small, in the small town of mountain home, Idaho, Idaho. Uh, there's like a big, uh, Air Force base that's out in the like the middle of nowhere, and the Singapore Air Force trains at this base, and so there's like a Singaporean restaurant there, and the the food is just spectacular. Amazing. You just like yeah, you just like find oh, I'm gonna read about this Air Force base on Wikipedia, and you know the Mountain Home Idaho and what's going on out there, and just it's interesting little like tidbits of interesting places. So three three years in. Uh, inquiring minds want to know, you know, what's the long-term plan? I mean, I don't have one. Um, <laughs> I think like whenever we decide what our uh, strategy is going to be, but whether it's to keep going remote as we have been, we, we being an office, as, we as a company. Yeah. <laughs> like if we're going to keep doing this, I don't, I don't have a plan. I, I registered that I'm like a little lonely from time to time. Um, and maybe it would be nice to have like a place to kind of anchor base from, mm-hmm. but I don't, I don't particularly have an immediate plan to uh, like, I've had enough. I'll just keep doing this for a while. For those of you who've been listening to the podcast, um, you'll, you'll note that, you know, our team is, is scattered uh, throughout the country. We've got a handful of folks in Philadelphia, um, New York City. Uh, I'm out here on the West Coast. Aaron, you're you're officially a resident of South Dakota, I believe. That's right. Yeah, that's right. The the they make it particularly easy for full time RVers to be residents of the state. So, and the no state income tax thing is pretty nice. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Now, now you you're um, pretty good at that kind of stuff about about avoiding taxes. Um, that that must that must date to some some earlier career choices. Um, when when Aaron and I met, um, we were uh, in college together at New College, and Aaron was majoring in economics. And I believe he graduated with a degree in economics. Is that right? I did. I didn't start there. I I was a literature major. I think to ah, begin. Wow. <laughs> um, but my but my desire to think about taxes uh, began in the womb. My parents, uh, both physicians, uh, had me induced uh, on New Year's Eve, uh, and we jokingly uh, say that that was for tax purposes. So, tax deduction, baby, right here. Uh, that's that's. Um, and have you asked them about this? Have they confirmed or denied that this was? Uh, yeah, they they basically confirmed. Yeah, we'll we'll take the tax deduction for that. You know, a full year. But they only had to put up with me for the that first day. 
Amazing, amazing. So you, and of course you you grew up in, this is maybe a, a different story, but you grew up in, in rural Alabama, uh, which yeah. is um, with, um, with parents who had, had relocated uh, originally from uh, New York, although your mom is from India. Is your mom born in India? Yep. Born, yes. raised in Delhi. And then she met uh, my dad in medical school. And yeah. Alabama, here we come. And now, would exactly. you ever move back to Alabama? I would not likely move back to Alabama. And they might I, would, be I, would, I would much more likely move to, uh, to New York. You know that it's mostly our parents who listen to the podcast here. So if they're tuning in, do you want to say hi? <laughs> hi. <laughs> hi, mom and dad. Um, I think it'll, I think it'll be hard for my parents to find this podcast. Yeah. Well, you should send it to them and say I'm famous now, guys. I'm on the I'm on the podcast. I'm on the Watt Carbon podcast, which has dozens of listeners every month. Twenty three of them. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh, and so, so from from an econ degree as an undergrad, uh, you went, you did a, the normal same thing, just like me, and and got a PhD. Although you didn't go get a PhD right away, right? You you spent a little yeah, it wasn't direct. Yeah, I uh, I futzed around in Sarasota. So we went to college at, at in in Sarasota, Florida, and uh, I futzed around there for a little while. Uh, got an MBA at UF. Uh, had That's done the University at, of Florida. Yeah, in Gainesville. And I was like lucky enough to be there for like the Tebow and Noah years. That was like particularly good time to be a Florida Gator. Those were football um, players. One's a football player, one's a basketball player, yeah. Um, but the uh, Florida won back to back football titles and back to back basketball titles. It was like, you know, a good time to get cheap or free sports tickets. Um, and so I had interned at a small investment bank down in Coral Gables. I was like, oh, that wasn't quite as sexy as I wanted it to be or hoped it would be. Uh, I loved the folks that I was working for. I, I learned a ton. Uh, and I spoke to faculty in both management and finance and uh, ultimately uh, settled on uh, pursuing a finance degree. And the professors at Florida were kind enough to let me in, uh, even though I was uh, wildly underqualified from a mathematics standpoint. So like, I scraped by. There's a lot of, a lot of pretty hardcore math uh, when you go get a PhD in finance, I'm assuming. Yeah. And I, I had only taken like a quarter in, in college. Um, so like I had no linear algebra uh, background uh, and it, and it showed up from time to time where I just couldn't, I, I couldn't do the math. There were, there was a question I, I distinctly recall where, I could I could imagine what the answer looked like, like I could. I, in fact, I, I remember on this this test, it was like a four question, four hour test, and I and I drew a graph, and sort of like the answer is at this point, and I would and I described in like three or four sentences. This is this is why the answer is you know where the line intersects the y axis for these reasons. And I looked around at the rest of the kids in the room. They were all just like doing the Greek. <laughs> yeah, doing right. And um, and as I recall, nobody got the problem correct. Like nobody could do the math. 
Uh, but I was the only person that actually like wrote down like why the answer needed to be whatever it was. Um, so like I can, I can visualize what is supposed to happen, but I'm not always that great at the Greek or the algebra, the advanced calculus. At, at new college, I took a class. You may have taken this class also. Uh, it was called thinking about statistics, a liberal arts approach, uh, Kathy Elliott taught it. And so I can certainly relate to being able to think quite a bit about statistics and not actually yeah. be able to do the math behind much of any of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't take that class with, with Kathy, but I, I can picture what that would be like. Yeah. <laughs> very, very typical new college approach to, to these types of things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you got a PhD in, in finance, which um, I think is relatively rare, right? Like most people who go into finance, who bothered doing all of that work, um, just go to Wall Street and, and like you get a, an MBA and like go uh, become a bond trader or something, right? Like how how many PhDs are there in finance? Uh, probably more than you would think, but for the most part, you don't you don't need a PhD in finance to do very well on wall street so like why why go do that um it shows up from time to time like in some advanced derivatives uh thing or you might see phds in like computer science working you know for some hedge fund or quant trading firm but in in general the only the only real reason to get a finance phd is if you have some desire to be a finance professor which you did uh you you went on the job market and and all of the colleges came beckoning, and and you uh, you selected um, a, a particularly out of the way college for some reason, huh? You know, it's uh, so I, I went to East Carolina. Not it is uh, uh, not that out of the way. Uh, it's the second largest school in the state of North Carolina. It's bigger than Chapel Hill. Um, so like it's amazing, perfectly Great. like normal's like school just happens to be in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Where halfway between where, Raleigh and the coast. Where is it? About halfway between Raleigh and the coast. Okay. Is there a town? Uh, yeah, it's a Greenville, North Carolina. When when people hear Greenville, they instinctively think of South Carolina, but it's the one in North Carolina. Excellent. And so you taught undergraduates uh, the basics of the Black-Scholes theorem or something? Like what, what goes into a finance uh, undergraduate curriculum yeah um so usually there's like an intro finance class that any business major needs to take whether they're marketing or finance major like anybody needs at least to know the basics of the time value of money uh, how to do like that kind of math and then for the finance majors uh, there's usually a class in equity and capital markets there may be a class on, in fixed income uh, bonds, etc., uh, and then there there's uh, likely a course in um, uh, like uh, corporate finance. So, like, how do companies think about making decisions about their money? So, it, my experience in teaching was that you actually learn quite a bit about the stuff that you may not have otherwise known. Did you have that same, you know, especially coming from a a lit slash econ undergrad? Um, did you end up learning a lot of things in the course of your couple of, you taught for four years? Three. Three years? Um, yeah. Picking up quite a, quite a bit of relevant real world knowledge? Uh, I, I wouldn't call it real world knowledge. No. <laughs> I think like I learned a lot about 
how to communicate complicated topics hmm. in more simple, easy to digest like ways. I think if you can explain something to an eighth grader, then you probably un like understand the material pretty well. Definitely. And I, and I found like a lot of people fudge knowledge behind sort of acronyms and complicated like things and you speak real fast totally and other people are intimidated to ask you to explain that mm -hmm. and i think one of the skills that i learned while teaching was how to slow it down and talk about it in a much more uh, understandable way i do that all the time when i feel not very confident about something or feel like I'm kind of like I've got imposter syndrome or something. I will find myself um, relying on a on a deep reservoir of acronyms and you know complicated terms and and you know words strung together really quickly that may if, if you were to say them slowly, somebody would look at you like, "What the hell are you talking about?" But you know, if you say them fast enough, people just assume that you're smart. Like that's yeah, a very good, right. a, a tried and true strategy and a certain and, yeah. and a surefire way of exposing you know for me at least uh when i'm kind of making it up as i go along yeah and you know going back to the the phd program i think one of the things that i got very comfortable with is a the realization that i'm not the smartest guy in the room anymore like mm -hmm. for a long period of my life there was like a i might be the smartest guy in this room and then i got you know, further in my education, whether that be at new college or, you know, in graduate school, and you like run into people and you're like, holy crap, these guys are smart. Like <laughs> that guy was wicked smart. Um, so A, getting comfortable with that. And then B, being all right, asking really dumb questions. Mm -hmm. Like, wait, I can, I'm sure that I could work out the logic here, but I just got to understand like, what is the basic concept that we're talking about? Mm -hmm. Um, and just sort of being willing to play the part of the moron in class. Like, like not just for me, but like for the rest of like the group it was like, wait, how does this work again? Can we, can we back this up and like slow it down step-by-step? Step? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Super helpful. So, um, but that ultimately was, was unfulfilling for you um, being in the, in the classroom, being in, in a university. Uh, I was on a, I, I was recording a podcast uh, this week. And uh, the podcast host was looking at my LinkedIn and, and asked me about my description of being an associate professor in which I had in, distilled it all into one word, which was hell. And he, he asked me to expand on that. And, um, you know, that was a little bit flippant of me to, to put down, but there was a, an element there of uh, it's not, it's, you know, there's a lot of drudgery that goes along with being a college professor that I think a lot of people don't really realize until you get into it. And, and, um, and the, and sometimes, you know, there's this, the student engagement is a little bit lacking. And so you have this feeling of like, you're showing up, uh, you're putting a lot into it, but not necessarily getting a lot out of it. Did you have a similar kind of experience as that? Uh, yeah, for sure. So I, I described my, period there as being a subprime student loan originator. Like at the end of the day, lots of students 
are just there to get a piece of paper paid for on student loans that they will slowly pay off. Maybe we'll see. Um, but you know, you wouldn't hand out this kind of money to all the people that we would are handing the money out to if you did an actual like credit check. Uh, this is basically just subprime student loans. And, you know, as a college of business professor, you're paid pretty well. Um, so like, I don't begrudge anybody like for doing it as a career, but where I might have seen uh, a half dozen like fun, interesting students every semester, 12, 12 to 15 students a year isn't, doesn't feel like as impactful as I would want it to be for my career. So let's go and try and solve a different problem. That's going to be much more interesting. Totally. So you, so you moved out here to, to California and you joined a, an, an early stage uh, company. Well, I guess it wasn't, it was sort of early stage at, at the yeah. time. Uh, yeah. The, the co-founders had art had split, I think at that point, um, but it was still relatively, relatively young. That's a company called Sigfig. And, yeah. uh, and, and so what was it like, uh, you know, I, I, I get a lot of old, old colleagues or people who are in academia kind of asking me about leaving my job, especially, at, you know, I had had tenure at that point um, and what it was like to kind of like move careers. And um, I think there's, you know, a lot of academics now who are like really, you know, thinking seriously about that. But what was your experience there leaving academia and trying to, you know, join a startup? Um, did, you, did you find your skills transferable? Did they, you know, what did did they take you seriously, or, or did it kind of hurt you that you were coming out of academia? Uh, it definitely hurt. Um, like I, I don't think I've hoofed it that hard for a job. Um, you know, ever. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was. It, uh, I had, in fact, gotten some advice that I should take the PhD off my resume. Because people just didn't know what to do with that. They were they would be afraid that I'm just a thinker, just a talker, just like, oh, we could do this idea or that idea, but not actually do a thing. Uh, and I caught a break. Uh, the CEO of SigFig uh, knew my sister and was sort of like, you know, in the finance fintech space and was willing to give me a chance. And, uh, you know, I'll be eternally grateful, uh, for, for that opportunity. Uh, I was there for about eight years and loved most minutes, uh, of that journey. Uh, it's automated wealth management. So I got to figure out how to build an application, an algorithm that would invest like your finance professor would want you to invest. Um, and that was a lot of fun. I got to wear a thousand different hats uh, at that company, uh, from being a product manager to like the investments guy to um, financial advisor, like talking to people on the phone about like how to think about their investments. Um, I was the world's least qualified chief compliance officer, uh, QA, you know, just a whole bunch of different roles. And that was fun. That that feels, you know, in, in many ways, when you think about being an academic and and especially one where, you know, we have to, you, you're a faculty member who's required to teach, you know, a variety of classes that you may not be a, a total subject matter expert in that versatility 
I think is an under underrated aspect of 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 academics um, and being able to you know going through a grad program and you know you're in these seminars where you have you know hundreds of pages of reading to do per week per class being able to synthesize it and talk about it you know intelligently like in a group of you know smarter people than you um every week for for years on end like that training is um i i, I find it you know that that to me is kind of like the most transferable skill that i can like point to is that i can come up you know there'll be a new thing that that i need to know about and i can quickly like figure out what i need to read read it understand it and be able to talk about it you know at some level of depth um that doesn't doesn't slow me down too much and and i sort of feel like that's um if i was going to you know point to anything where as as an academic what you don't realize that you have this skill um is because i think we kind of take it for granted as academics that like we go through all this and then we just know how to do this it's like in in the matrix when keanu reeves like wakes up and goes i know kung fu like oh you know like oh my god but we have that like kind of skill set that's been honed over the years that i think that does translate really well to startups now we also have this tendency to overthink things and to, you know, like there's a lot of negatives that come with it but um at least in my experience that's that's been a really like valuable um training uh background to be able to like quickly navigate these new worlds that we find ourselves in yeah i mean i think like some of the better professors in my life when when presented with uh, an interesting question from a student in class they're sort of like the best at huh i don't know the answer to that but give me a couple of days and i'll come back with like this is this is the answer or this is why the world works the way it does um and not being intimidated by the oh i don't know i mean i think you know in in general people get a little verklempt over not knowing uh how to answer a thing on the fly or being able to say um like, I don't, I don't know yet. Um, I have a fairly strong bullshit meter. And so like, I, I, I find, I find I dislike it when people are clearly bullshitting me when mm -hmm. it would just be better if you said, I, I don't know, but I can go find the answer. Uh, I think the other thing that showed up for me in sort of like the translation between being a, a finance professor is like, we have to write a whole bunch of code to like sift through the data um, and QA that code and, and does the thing do what we want it to do. And we, we start thinking about like, how do we do this at scale? And these are all this, like the same kind of problems that we like think about in, in tech. And so, you know, as we think about building software, what things need to be scalable at first, what things are we willing to do manually until we're sort of confident that it works? Uh, these are all sort of like uh, things that we had to do in small groups, either for our own like little, little papers that we like wrote for class or in, you know, four person teams to, to write sort of like a bigger paper. Uh, and this is just sort of now at a, slightly larger scale of trying to figure out how do you do this and divvy up the work amongst experts who are particularly good at either designing an idea, architecting that, writing code, QA, presenting it to the yep. world. 
it's kind of an amazing for me at least to have you know people who are you know just so much better at that stuff than i would ever even you know kind of pretend to be right and so like being able yeah. to work with them and watch them do their you know practice their craft um, yeah it's I, I feel like it's one of the most, you know, from being a CEO, like this is one of the most rewarding parts of my job is just like getting smart people around me and being in awe of the work that they do, you know, on yeah. a daily basis. Uh, think I was, I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit about, you know, like you had two kind of big transitions, um, one from academia into um, a startup. And, and then, you know, I recruited you to help me start this company, which brought you into climate. And that was you know, as much as we'd hung out over the years and I, you know, kind of told you all of the things uh, that I was, had always been thinking about, this is still an industry um, that was new to you. Um, a lot of new acronyms, <laughs> a lot of new, you know, concepts. Um, and, but, but this is a, you know, an extremely common, becoming, I think, a lot more common these days where people are reevaluating their own careers and trying to come up with something impactful uh, to work on. And, I wonder how, you know, if, as you re, you reflect on the transition from academia to non-academia versus like in tech to another tech company, but in a different industry, like how those two transitions compared to each other. Yeah, I think the, the driving factor in both decisions was around having maximizing impact. Like I... I realize that I'm only going to be on this earth once and I should make the most of that opportunity. Um, and again, as much as it's a lot of fun to engage with a dozen really like uh, interesting undergrads, uh, that, that, that just wasn't enough for me. And the opportunity to, to move into a, into FinTech and, and trying to help hundreds of thousands of people get to retirement faster, safer, because like we're going to take the pain out of trying to figure out what you should do. Um, that, like that, that was sort of in the wheelhouse already because I'd mm -hmm. been in school for a lot of years and I'd been talking and teaching this stuff and, and sort of like I was able to sell that. You know, like this is this is what you need to do. Like I was able to write about it sort of in a, a cogent way. And and I think one of the observations I had when I moved here is that I'm I'm no longer the like the brains of this thing. And and I'm okay with that. Like I look at the folks on, on our team who already have like deep experience at this and i as much as i uh, hope and strive work towards getting the foundations of their knowledge so that i can speak as as cogently uh, as i did before at the at, at fintech um i recognize that like our current application and how it works like the the theory of our current application didn't come out of my brain. Uh, it came out of somebody else's brain. And so like my, my contribution here is very different. It's sort of mm. like, how do I apply what I observed? What lessons did I take from trying to scale teams before to this one? How do mm -hmm. I, how do I help this 
uh, group of crafty individuals build more efficiently? Mm -hmm. How do we think about uh, using our very finite resources as effectively as possible? It seems it seems like that story is is a fairly universal one though that that in all in all cases um, you're going to show up to um, to work with a particular set of experiences and skills and and um, that are unique to you right that like like literally nobody else in the world has the same background that you do and can bring the same things and so in some ways like our jobs you know both as managers and as employees is to figure out how to what the, what the economists call it a comparative advantage mm -hmm. uh, you know where how do i get the most out of the particular skill set that you bring to the table and and like yep. and understand what that is and 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 like so from a company's perspective like if we're doing our job right we're like uniquely we're understanding the unique value add from each of our employees and fitting that into what we do um, and then as an employee, uh, part of, you know, the job is to like articulate that and to bring that and don't be intimidated by that or scared of it. Right. Or like, or, you know, so like when you, you know, wanted to erase the PhD from your name, like that was, that was like bad because it was, it was removing an aspect of what made you special, right? Like there, you know, the fact that you got a PhD now and, and shame on us collectively who were thinking about hiring you back then for thinking about that as detrimental for not recognizing the um, unique values that would you would bring to the table as somebody who had reached that level of accomplishment. Mm, I'm not sure I agree. I mean, I think I, I've I've interviewed and hired a, enough people at this point in my career where I I understand the heuristic to be like oh you're a phd i'm 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 like i'm skeptical like even i as a guy with a phd am skeptical of people who have phds when they're looking for a job for operational roles in, a, in an early stage company for example yeah um for for lots of different kinds of roles you know, like you know um i i am nervous that that they want like there's a there's an element of trying to knock off the first eighty like percent of a problem in twenty percent of the effort, but most of the PhDs I know can't can't stop there. Hmm. Hmm. And you're just like, no, like we will have other problems, bigger problems to worry about than the remaining twenty percent. Let's like let it go. It's fine. We'll move on. And so, so it's hard for for that kind of person to show up with a PhD. Like that's, that's just like, they're, they're not exactly, but close to being mutually exclusive characteristics. And, yeah. and, and I think like the other, the other element is I find that, and this is not specifically about PhDs, but it's like people get wrapped up in the, their own uh, mental image of themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like what they, what, they, what they want their story to be. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it was convenient that my first startup job was in the specific area that I knew quite a bit about. Um, and this one doesn't have anything to do with anything I know about. Um, 
but I don't get particularly stressed about that. But I know that other people can get stressed about the, I need, I need like a theme to my career. I, I want to be able to tell a story. I was like, you know, this self image about mm-hmm. what I, what I expect it to be. And I think there's a, there's another element here of like, how do we approach jobs as like within the, the like framework of strengths versus weaknesses, mm-hmm. like we should try and correct our weaknesses versus just maximize on your strengths. And I, and I tend to, to believe that you should get your weaknesses to some like minimum satisfactory level and then just like crush away at your strengths. Like don't, don't try, don't try and get, don't be a superstar at your weaknesses. Like that, that seems like a silly waste of time. You should just get to like serviceable on things that you're not that good at and then just like crushed at the things you're good at. I, I think of, of Shaquille O'Neal shooting free throws being a, a good example of that. Just like make 60% of them and we're going to be fine. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Don't, don't let Hack-A-Shack beat you. Yeah, totally. Uh, so now that you're in the industry a little bit and um, you're starting to observe things, you know, you and I were just at the Clean Energy Buyers Association conference last week and you got a chance to observe uh, some of those some of those sessions. And uh, is there anything, uh, you know, kind of different about climate or about, you know, the world that we're in uh, that that you look at and, and you think, um, you know, this industry could really benefit from more um, finance type thinking or, you know, could could be informed by, you know, some of the approaches that, that you guys took at SIGFIG or that, you know, come outside that are not maybe not native to, to climate, but um, where that we could really um, see opportunities for innovation by incorporating some of those other those other ideas. Yeah, I mean, I I I I guess one of the things that's been in the back of my head over the last week is that cash cash is king. Like, where like there aren't that many deals, quite quite frankly, um, and. I've long been a cynic about businesses, enterprises doing something about climate, which I guess seems kind of ironic given, you know, <laughs> what, what we do here. Um, but, but yeah, so I, I mean, I guess I've been sort of cynical about that. And I think there are a number of different reasons for that. A, it's new. B, I generally think that it's, Cheap talk and sort of like good to say to investors, oh, we're thinking about the climate, but you know, at the end of the day, uh, investors care about the bottom line and they want to see, you know, how do your business decisions impact, you know, mm-hmm. the dividend take home, um, the dividends that you pay out, the shares that you repurchase. Um, but I also suspect that most people, most organizations don't yet even have a good gauge of where to start. So there were what, like 50 to 75, maybe a hundred companies at SIBA last week, you know, maybe 5% of the S&P 500. And we're talking at least half of them, half the S&P 500 have some kind of stated public climate goals. 
And yet there might've been, there might've been 25 to 50, there might've been 25 S and P 500 companies there. And so that, that either suggests that it's just cheap talk. Like they have these climate goals, but they don't actually have any like real plan or desire to get there. Or they don't really have a good sense of where to start. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very surprised that there weren't that many deals happening. Like I sat in on a couple of sessions where they were talking about the kinds of transactions that Starbucks or Google were making, like for these you know, big companies. And just surprised at like how few deals generally there are in the space. And you know, my, my takeaway there is that there's just a lot of overhead hmm. in the deals. Mm-hmm. Um, lawyer, like redlining of contracts. How do you do all the due diligence? Uh, how, how do you get comfortable that a multi-year project, somebody's not going to like blow up? And there's, there's just a lot of moving parts on these like really long sales cycle transactions mm-hmm. that will materialize over years. And how do you, how do you figure out how to make them less, uh, like challenging to get across the finish line? Um, I think that's, I, I was, I was thinking too about you know, that there's that old video. I'm sure like uh, people have seen like the, the motivational speaker. He's got like a mason jar and he puts some rocks in it. And he's like, is the jar full? And it looks full. And he like throws some pebbles in it. Now is it full? And then he throws some sand in it. And now it's like really full. And what we're seeing now is basically small mason jars full of big stones. Because we can't figure out how to get anybody to absorb the deal flow of small stones or... Mm-hmm. grains of sand mm-hmm. and the, there's there's probably some opportunity there but i don't think that anybody's figured out how to systematize right i mean that's one of the beauties of tech is that they're if you can figure out how to systematize these smaller transactions you can just make you can just do them like thousands tens of thousands of times and there's there seems like there's opportunity there but in the current framework, it seems very difficult. It's just too much yep. friction. Yep. Yep. No, it totally makes sense. Um, Aaron, we have, uh, we've got just, just another minute or two left. Now, um, there's one more interesting thing about you that, that folks have to know. Uh, you play in a, um, in a throwback baseball league. Yeah. Vintage so give, baseball. Us the, give us the highlights of, of this crazy uh, passion of yours. Yeah, uh, I, we play in the Bay Area Vintage Baseball League. Uh, we play by 1886 rules. Uh, as as my buddy Evan would describe it, it's 90% baseball, 10% Renaissance Fair because we're like wearing old timey uniforms. Uh, but the the play is pretty good. Uh, we had these big, thick handled bats, uh, sort of in the in the spirit of 19th century baseball. The gloves are best described as gardening gloves mm. uh, without any webbing. There's no padding. You're just like trying to catch it, you know, in this tiny little glove. Um, we, nobody wears any helmets because they didn't have helmets back then. So it's 
good fun out in Golden Gate Park on random Sunday afternoons in San Francisco. And when does the next season start? Uh, it is underway. It is underway. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So we should we should all prepare to to head out to Golden Gate Park and and uh, and sit around and do you drink like old fashioned beer or anything like that? Is there does this extend you know to the broader you know like um, you know thematic elements of of showing up to the game? Uh, so so we don't typically drink uh, during the game, though uh, I suspect that our umpire has been known to. Zip from his hip flask from time okay. to time between batters. Fantastic. Uh, well, maybe we'll, we'll we would pour ourselves an old fashioned, perhaps after the game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love it. Well, thank you so much for being on the Watt Carbon podcast with me today. Thanks uh, for having me. Great to hear a little bit more about your your background, and um, you've obviously brought a lot to the table for us as a company. Um, super appreciate the the time and and. Um, Safe, safe travels around the country. Uh, wh- where do you where do you head off to this this summer? Yeah, uh, so I'm off to Philadelphia to spend a little time with our engineering team in Philadelphia next week, and then uh, up to your old stomping grounds of Syracuse, New York, for a little while. And then I'm going to take the motorcycle up to Quebec City, and then out towards Newfoundland. See how far we get before. Amazing. Before the the Starlink runs out. (laughs) Exactly. All right. Well, safe safe travels. Uh, Thanks for being on today. We'll catch up with you later. Yeah. Thanks for having me. See ya. Bye.